0: You're listening to that'll preach. This is Brian. I'm with my co-host Paul, and we're grateful for you guys tuning in to uh, listen to us, rabble about nonsense, and, uh, but the nonsense that we rabble about is pretty insightful, I would say. But Paul, uh, how are you, you doing uh,
1: over there in your Waco, Texas layer? In my you commented that my office is smaller than the usual. It is pretty small. but it's cozy. I feel like I feel like academia has not treated me as well as ministry has treated you, because <laughs> you've got a window in your office and I am sitting in this little underground bunker. <laughs> it's funny because when we logged on, I was like, "Oh, let me see your
0: uh, let me see your office," and you literally you, you turned your camera like <laughs> ten degrees, and that was the extent of your office. It was a very. I, I feel like you, your your office is like a
1: triangle. Is that um, essentially, no. what it. It's, it's like a, it's almost a square, but one of the walls is, yeah, it's kind ca- ca- No ca- windows? Da- no. It's not even a full triangle. It's a ghetto triangle. Hmm. That was my rap name in, in high school. Your, your rap name was Ghetto Triangle? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that would be pretty sick, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, it's like academic, but it's, it's also like, like <laughs> New Yorkish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You grew up in like inner city, New
1: York. Yo, 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 give it up for Ghetto Triangle. <laughs> Oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then, like, people, instead of beatboxing, you just pull out a triangle, and you're just, like, notorious for your, for your triangle tracks. Oh, man, yeah.
1: That's my childhood. Well,
0: yeah, there you go. Ghetto triangle. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like you've uh, made your nice little home there in Waco.
1: That's right. Waco.
0: Waco, Texas. Waco.
1: Home of uh, the two famous cults. We talked about the old cult. Yeah, we, I think it?
0: we've talked about cults. every single time we,
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) about you making one uh, about (laughs) the magnolia cult you know like the h home the home and garden tv like the big it's like every millennial girl's dream to have like the shiplap shabby chic like walls oh you're talking about like the the joanna games yeah yeah yeah. that's like a cult like people worship them here like they have billboards and people quote them it's a little bit odd i'm not a fan but mm. it's it's right it's it's your jam. That's what you love. Yeah, exactly. You scream barnyard aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're the one who wants the homestead.
0: So, that's true. Your your deal. That's true. But uh so let's let's get started. We we've been reading our way through Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Really uh it's just a, it's a collection of essays that he wrote. G.K. Chesterton is a Catholic author from when when, when did he write was it the uh
1: like late, late 19th, early 20th centuries, right before yeah. Lewis.
0: Yeah. And uh, he's an influence on Lewis, I believe. He is. And, Funnily uh,
1: enough, I was, I was reading. Um, so Elizabeth Anscombe, the famous Catholic philosopher of the 20th century, she became a Christian by reading um, Chesterton. I didn't know. Really? That. I discovered that a couple days ago. Orthodoxy? Yeah. I don't know if it was Orthodoxy or if it was The Everlasting Man, but it was one of his works. She was like 16 or 17, grew up just sort of agnostic, read Chesterton, and then became Catholic. And now she's like one of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century, one of the most brilliant Catholic minds of the last couple hundred years. Well, I think Chesterton, the way
0: he writes, you know, when I read it, it's very witty. And it's kind of like, I remember back when the new new, uh, atheists were really popular, Mm. Chris Hitchens, Dawkins, Uh, Daniel Dennett, Mm -hmm. Sam Harris, these guys, and they've kind of faded off the map. I mean, obviously Chris Hitchens died, but one of the things they had going for them was not necessarily that they had these great intellectual arguments. In fact, a lot of them, I think have been proven to be very flimsy, Mm -hmm. but they had a swagger and they had a wittiness. They just seemed very articulate and not afraid to rub people the wrong way. They had a punchiness to the way they wrote and spoke that gave their arguments a persuasive power that maybe intellectually they didn't really have. I don't, I I think that Cheston kind of has that vibe, except I think he actually has some good arguments, but he (laughs) writes in a way that he's not afraid of critics. He's he's not afraid of being seen as I I don't know. He's not afraid of being satirical. He's not afraid of even like Putting in some witty jabs at his critics and people like that. I mean, it's,
1: he's a brawler. He's a little bit of a fighter, you know? Yeah, he's not, he's not. I feel like Lewis is pretty neat, tidy, polished, and Chesterton is like, he's like what the descriptions of him make him sound like. Like he's got a cigar in one hand and a th- thing of whiskey in the other, and he's just like, debating an atheist in a pub in downtown London. And that's the way that his writing comes across. Do you think like we have a modern... That sort of audience. Do you think we have a modern Chester? Hmm. I feel like my answer here could be controversial, so I will plead the fifth. No, no,
0: now you have to say
1: it. Who's your, who's, who's your guy? I was going to say... I don't know, like the fiery elements make me think like... A little Paul Washer-y, but Paul Washer is like kind of also timid and I don't know. There's no like – You think no Paul director. Washer is timid? Yeah. I
0: mean, well, he's Are got you like insane? A... <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. I'm talking about you.
1: I can't imagine Paul Washer like with a cigar and a thing of whiskey. Yeah, that's like, true. debating an atheist in a pub. Yeah. I yeah, know. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe
0: they just don't make them like they used to. But uh, let's look at uh, chapter three, The Suicide of Thought. These a great chapter title. We looked at chapter one, which is the introduction in defense of everything else. Chapter two was the maniac and chapter three is the suicide of thought. And he begins with this provocative statement. I mean, like every other line is provocative, but he talks about how the modern world is not evil. In some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. And he goes on to say, the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. And the virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. And then he uses this example of a guy named Mr. Blatchford who attacks Christianity because uh, he doesn't like the doctrine of sin. And what Chesterton says is, here's what's interesting. Blatchford is is... Focusing only on the virtue of charity to the exclusion of all the virtues, justice, you know, all the, you know, things like that. And he's saying that unmoored from a Christian foundation, it's not even just that we end up doing vices, but our virtues are all out of whack. And I think he's touching on something here because the guy who says, uh, it's easier to forgive sins by saying there are no sins to forgive. He is overly empathetic, overly charitable to where there's no doctrine of sin anymore. It's out of balance. It's out of whack. And Chesterton is trying to reveal that. He's saying it's actually our virtues out of whack that are our problem. We can't just point at the bad things we do, but the good things that we do in isolation from other good things or the good things that we do out of balance or without a, a vision of, of how they all integrate together. Um, so yeah. is, is that a, a fair summary, you think?
1: I I, yeah, I took him to be saying that um, the modern virtues are shadowy, incomplete versions of the Christian versions. So we we think we're in a post-Christian society, and it's funny to see how like pessimistic Chesterton is about his own society. Oh, I know, 100, right? Hundred thirty years ago, he's just like we're just totally lost. Like we're at the end of our rope. I wonder what he'd say if he were around in 2023. Yeah, he's like, like
0: there are Calvinists running around. What's this world coming to? You know, it's like, this, this is so depraved.
1: Right? Things get so much worse, yeah. GK. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think he thinks that the modern, the modern virtues that we think are so noble and are better than the primitive backwards Christianity that we've come out of, Chesterton's diagnosis is actually all the virtues that we're practicing are given to us by the Christian worldview, we're just practicing them worse. We're, we're not, by getting rid of this concept of sin, we no longer can embrace and practice justice in the same way, even our charity, the virtue of charity is reduced to this sentimental empathy. Um, but there's still a connection between like the modern virtues and the Christian virtues, it's just that the modern ones are sort of deflated. And that's his point. So we think we've gone past Christianity, we think we're in a post-Christian world, um, we're doing so in a sort of parasitic way, like even our virtues are parasitic on the Christian conceptions.
0: This reminds me of Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And we've talked about this before, I think. And one of the things he talks about is uh, for between liberals and conservatives, he talks about moral taste buds and how we have like these certain sensibilities that are kind of baked into who we are and that the liberal moral taste buds are like safety and equality or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that that they feel are like compelling whereas conservatives have safety and equality but also sacredness uh order all or these other things yeah, yeah mm-hmm. authority meaning that they have a wider palette a wider things wider things that uh, a wider palette of things that give them consideration that, that you know and you can see if all you have is the harm principle like do no harm and make sure everything's equal i mean then you do have no room for authority, for sacredness, for these types of things. It's a very myopic kind of view of what good is. But he's trying to say that, yes, there's Christian charity, but that's not the whole thing. And, and, and also you can't understand what charity really is apart from understanding it in relation to Christianity. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get a shadowy version, like you said, but it's always going to be deprived of something, deprived of its fullness. Yeah, you
1: know. But that, I like this. Yeah, I like I like this discussion of um, the section on humility. I think yeah, was, I was really was really telling, and and you could in reading this, you can see where um, maybe Lewis was influenced, or there's a lot of this that I, I read and I, I see bits of this in Lewis's thought and Lewis's writings. But the overall picture that um, Chesterton's trying to give us is. The modern mind is one that's trying to be humble, but in saying that it's humble, it takes on like a weird, like corrupted version of humility. The modern sense of being humble is just be skeptical. Don't believe anything. Right. We don't have enough evidence to, to affirm or have convictions or anything like that. And so we, th- we have replaced the virtue of humility with the virtue of skepticism. Or we think that they're the same. We think what it is to be humble is to just have less and less beliefs until you get to the point where, Chesterton notes, you start denying even the most basic things like believing the external world exists or believing the multiplication table or all of these sorts of innate or sort of innocuous um, super obvious principles that we need to function the modern mind says, oh, we, we can't know that. We're not equipped to handle this stuff. And so we, what we call a posture of humility is actually just a posture of skepticism. But Chesterton's diagnosis is that's actually just cowardice. So what we're calling humility is just being afraid of forming convictions and like submitting ourselves to the truth, where true humility is about don't believe more or less than what the evidence suggests to you, but never believing anything at all, never forming convictions. That's not humility. That's just cowardice. That's looking at reality and failing to submit yourself to the way the world is. And so you're an intellectual coward on this modern reading of humility.
0: And even that conviction that you can't know these things is itself a dogged (laughs) conviction. That's right. I mean, you're very certain that you can't know. And not only that, most often, you're very certain that other people can't know. You know, people will say, well, you know, I think it's great that you found Christianity or you have this moral code and that's good for you. And it's like, well, which one of us is right. They're like, well, it's not about right or wrong. It's about perspective. And it's like, well, what if my perspective is you're wrong? It's like, well, you can have that perspective. It's like, what if, what if I think you should have that perspective too? That's right. Well, if you agree with me, then you deny your own position. If you, if you disagree with me, you still deny your own position. You know, it's a circular type of thing. And I I like how Chesterton puts it. He says that uh, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. He's talking about his modern day, our our modern day too. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. The new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn. Hmm. Uh, And and of course, he says too, um, he talks about if you met a guy on the street who keeps saying crazy things and then caveats him with saying, but I might be wrong. <laughs> um, well, the problem is his whatever view he takes, he thinks is the right one or it's not his view. Right. So there's a difference between saying I could be wrong and saying this is my view, but I'm humble about whether I'm certain about this. It's another thing to say that you can't really have certain you can't have confidence about views at all. Like, I think there's a difference between confidence and certainty. You can have confidence in the view. Without being absolutely certain, you can be confident that, you know, you you're, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you can be confident you don't have some terrible disease or something, mm-hmm. but can you be absolutely, absolutely certain that there's no cancer cell in yeah. your body right now? I mean, no, but you can still have confidence enough to live your life in a meaningful way with confidence and, and to live as that, as a foundation of your the way you view the world or whatever. But, but, but I just well, thought yeah. that Chesterton really, really uh, insightful on this point.
1: That's not to say that there aren't times where we shouldn't be certain. There are, I think Chesterton does want to say that some things just smack us as obvious. And that, you know, we, it's not just that we should be confident. Sometimes we should be super convicted about certain things that are obvious. and And to treat them even as ambiguous is to do a disservice to the truth, and to ourselves. So he he says it like this. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Yeah. We are in danger of seeing philosophers who doubt the law of gravity as being a mere fancy of their own. Scoffers of old time were too proud to be convinced, but these are too humble to be convinced. The meek do inherit the earth, but the modern skeptics are too meek even to claim their inheritance. I love that. It's just, there are certain things that are obvious and fundamental and self-evident. And to be reasonable, rational as a human being is to acknowledge those and to use those as first principles, two plus two equals four. There's an external world around me. There are basic moral truths. Like If we don't know these things, then we can't know anything else. Just like you pointed out, the skeptic who's so certain that his skepticism is correct is going to do so in the face of all this other evidence for more obvious things like morality, mathematics, logic. Those things seem to us far more obvious than the skeptical worldview, but the skeptic has sort of traded one set of obvious first principles for another. He thinks the skepticism is the obvious way to go, When that just doesn't strike most of our human experience, Chesterton here is trying to vindicate human experience, trying to vindicate common sense, that the ordinary person on the street is going to say, yeah, you believe in gravity, you believe in the multiplication table, but what he calls the philosopher or the skeptic, the academic, thinks that it's a mark of wisdom to go beyond common sense and elevate this other way of thinking. And Chesterton thinks not only is that backwards, it does a disservice to reason, and it's actually super arrogant and cowardly synonymously. It's kind of like you look around the world, and you have the, you feel like you have these glasses, these
0: skeptical glasses that see through everything, but you never question whether your glasses are faulty or not. Yeah, right. You use it to, and you're, everyone's making a judgment call. Um, it says, he actually says later, "Reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all." And he says that uh, the young skeptic says, "I have a right to think for myself." but the old skeptic, the complete skeptic says, I have no right to think for myself. I have no right to think at all. Now that sounds a little, but I I understand though, who he's the the mentality of the person he's criticizing though, because yeah, on the one hand you're you're saying, okay, how do you know what things you should assume, whether they're correction? Like every, at the end of the day, everybody is judging for themselves in a sense. You mm-hmm. either find it persuasive or not. It doesn't affect whether something's true, but it does affect whether you believe it's true. You're, you're still making judgments. Um, I guess maybe what, what, what we're trying to say is that there are some things that you can't, there are some things that, that you can't avoid starting points that can't be mm-hmm. proven themselves. Right. So the very starting point of, um, the fact that your thoughts relate to reality, that you're not a brain in a vat. That's something you assume, that you can be confident. And not only do you need to be confident in that, but without that confidence in that, you have no ground to stand on to understand other things. And so I think what he's saying is if you're trying to unravel God and maybe Christianity in specific, you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on, right? And you're going to find that it's just not going to work. And maybe the reason that people feel like it works is because there's still, the branch hasn't fully fallen off. It's just kind Mm -hmm. of dangling and there's, it's kind of wobbly, but they're still sitting on it. Um,
1: Yeah. It's it's almost like a similar move to what Lewis makes in the argument that we ended up (laughs) doing a massive critique of where Lewis basically argues that if, if there's no God, like you can't trust your reason or something like that. Chesterton seems to be making a similar move, but he's, he's more explicit about the Christian, the Christian dimension of this argument where like you have to, you have to believe that your reason is itself able to communicate truth in some way. And that if you get rid of Christianity, you like, like you said, you, you saw the branch that you're sitting on. Um, So it, it does seem to be like a, the, the functioning of your rationality is, it hinges on whether or not God has given you um, reliable reason and reliable faculties. So this this actually seems to be what Lewis is echoing later on in the argument in his book Miracles. But um, it's one of those you don't, things. That, you don't buy it? I'm not exactly. I just, it, it sounds rhetorically powerful. I just, I don't see the, uh, like, why that argument works. And we don't have to get into all the details again. And just all these arguments that seem to say, well, you need God to exist if your rationality is going to give you, is going to access the world or there's a connection between the mind and the world mm-hmm. only if God exists or I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe something like that is true. I just, Chesterton doesn't give us an argument. He just sort of like assumes that that's going to be compelling. But yeah, it is rhetorically powerful. I'll give him that. Um, I'm just skeptical because I'm one of these philosophers that Chesterton's talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know.
0: You, I think you <laughs> just got exposed. That's right. I mean, would you say that, let me think about, like, we've talked about Alvin Plantinga <laughs> and his mm-hmm. properly basic beliefs. I don't know if that's exactly what Chesterton is saying. That No. But it might be of the same species where it's sure. like knowing God is like knowing that history exists. It's not just that, that, that history is a real thing. It's not just something that appeared to yeah. look, look like it's history or it's I not think a that's brand right. event, stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, I mean... You should be, there's a healthy dose of skepticism. And he actually uses a good analogy for this because he's just great analogies. He says that, um, he talks about how our, uh, what is it? Like tradition is supposed to be like a spur.
1: Where is it? Oh yeah. Um, the old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's it not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on for the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But this new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so he talks about how humility, intellectual humility is meant to be a spur to kind of temper us to say, okay, there's some things that we don't have full clarity on. are things we need to be humble about how deeply held they are. We need to be malleable in our thinking to some extent. But then he's like, but if it becomes a, what was it? What's the opposite of the spur? I can't even find the.
1: It's the nail in the boot.
0: Nail, okay, if it's yeah. a nail in the boot, then it actually impedes you from walking. It's, it goes, it transforms from being something that helps you, helps balance you and protects you, the spur, into right. something that harms you and becomes an obstruction to walking, right? right? The spur helps you to walk, the nail, prevents you from walking. he's saying this radical skepticism without the, without some kind of uh, foundation in Christianity or without some kind of boundary marker ends up undermining the entire project itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I do think that that's, I do think that something like that is right. Um, The instinct against skepticism, the instinct against, uh, you know, not taking seriously common sense like, I think that's right, like, and he wants to preserve that. And he thinks that there's something to be, there's something to be learned from the wisdom of the ordinary person's thinking and intuitions. Um, and may, maybe this is a kind of argument for God. So Plantinga says that, yeah, if, if God exists, then God would make truth, at least in these fundamental um, assumptions, easily accessible. Like, religious belief is going to be easy to access belief about metaphysics and like other minds and the world, like it shouldn't be too difficult. So we should, we should expect common sense to be reliable. Um, And so maybe this does amount to something like an argument for God. And it does seem to be that this is what Chesterton's trying to point at. So you're saying that Plantinga has a more fleshed out view where he's saying if God,
0: it it, it seems reasonable to think that God would want logic and reason to be easily accessible, that that you don't have to get a PhD to live a good life. Right, right, yeah. Right. And I, I, that is, I am kind of curious about that. And he, he actually talks about how later on a guy, uh, when he imagines a statue, uh, what's he say? Um, man, I wish I just I I, I, I like remember all these quotes, but like, oh, uh, where is it? It's like something about he imagines a statue, but he doesn't think about it in square inches or something like that. Um, oh yeah a man does not go mad because he makes a statue a mile high but he may go mad by thinking it out in square inches and i'm like Hmm. i'm trying to articulate what that means but I, i i get it i just don't know how to explain it it's it's like people don't go crazy like he's making this work of art but if he tries to break it down In square inches, if he tries to make art just by thinking about square inches, it's like he's missing the point. He's missing the form. He's getting lost in the trees and not seeing the forest. And that's what maybe brilliant kind of academic philosophical thinkers that he's talking about. It's what he's saying they're doing. That if you're so radically, you can be so focused on the square inches that you lose the wonder of a statue being a mile high. or, Or rather... Um, the thing that drives people insane is that radical nitpicking skepticism. You, yeah, you know what right. I'm saying? Is, is yeah. it, it's almost like seeing every pixel in a picture will drive yeah. you insane.
1: That's a good way of putting it. I, th- I think that's, a, that's probably what he's trying to say. And it's not – I don't think Barry's talking about the skepticism. But there I think he's talking about just like – the tendency to, to overanalyze. And yeah. this is something that academics do, that you you take a concept like love and then you put it under the microscope and then you're surprised when it dissipates in front of you. And you're just like, well, it's just, it's chemicals in the brain or whatever. And you end up with a really deflationary view. And then that that's the sort of stuff that, quote unquote, drives you crazy. Um, because you lose out on the big picture of stuff. You're like, well, if I if I can't see this thing in a test tube, or if I can't formalize it in a, in a syllogism, or if I can't whatever, then it doesn't exist, or I, I can't make sense of it. Chesterton's strategy is, well, no, you're, you're, you're going the wrong direction to try to understand. Yeah. You think that by reducing, you understand, but actually what you need to do is zoom out and look at things as a whole, yeah. so that you don't go crazy.
0: It would like be describing your child by naming all their organs. <laughs> You know what I mean like you don't you don't do that <laughs> you just, you just, yeah, no, I don't I, I don't have kids, but you know, Lever, yeah, spleen. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, <laughs> this is spleen rescala. but yeah, be like this, you're like, okay, you're 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 being so precise on one level that you're missing the whole picture. What about the guy who uh is addicted to change if uh this is uh, if the change worshiper wishes to estimate his own progress, he must Mm -hmm. be sternly loyal to the idea of change. He must not begin to flirt gaily with the ideal monotony. I love that, like, Cheston always flips it on its head. He goes, so you've got this revolutionary, he's like, we gotta change things, we gotta break down the old order, rethink things, whatever. Well, that person actually has his own dogged tradition, Mm -hmm. and it's that you always change things. Yeah, And so he actually becomes monotonous. (laughs) <laughs> He's sternly loyal to the idea of change. Mm-hmm. Always changing. It's it's like somebody who, mm. you know, it, 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 uh, someone's like a serial dater or somebody who church hops all the time or can never hold down a job. I don't I don't know what it is, but it's like it's funny because you're like you see what do you say you're like oh that person has a pattern of their life oh mm-hmm. that's just the way that they are and the person who's always changing and rethinking
1: yeah
0: it becomes its own rut and the idea is you actually stick with something
1: yeah. Have and you that's seen, where life actually comes. Have you seen uh, Dead Poet Society? Yes. With, you know the famous scene where he, uh, he tells the students that they need to read the text from a different angle? Like, don't read it straightforwardly. And then he stands up on his desk and then he reads it? Yeah. It's like a famous scene where it's supposed to be, like, inverting. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, all the students get on their desk and yeah, they do exactly what it. he's yeah. doing. <laughs> and so in, in encouraging them to, like, be different, like, they're all just adopting the same posture – and then the SNL sketch.
0: I, I was just going to say that the SNL parody of that. I can't even. The the memories have merged where I don't even remember the actual last scene. I just imagine the guy's head getting cut off by the by the fan, the ceiling fan,
1: and uh, Fred
0: Armisen like yeah. leaving like covered in blood. Like if, if it, people need to just watch.
1: Let's put a link to it in the yeah yeah yeah. it's
0: pretty <laughs> hysterical. But that is true. I mean, it's kind of like yeah. when people criticize you know, like hipsters back in the day where it's like, you guys are trying to be countercultural and you all look the same.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, don't take showers and way too much facial
0: hair. Whoa. I think think you're projecting there. (laughs) I think that's projection. That's right. Um, Um,
1: Can we talk about Chesterton's bleakness about society? Yes. I, I love this. And I also find it hilarious that he, (laughs) he just thought like, like the end of the 20 the end of the 19th century in London was just like the post apocalyptic like post everything world where just things can't get any worse mm-hmm. and i just find that hilarious because i don't know i i if he were alive today i think he just maybe maybe one thing to he just doesn't think that society could further degenerate from what it was maybe he's just optimistic about what human beings are capable of but like And he says here it's vain for bishops and pious bigwigs to discuss what dreadful things will happen if wild skepticism runs its course. And then he says, it has run its course. It is vain for, for eloquent atheists to talk of the great truths that will be revealed if we once see free thought again. We have seen it end. <laughs> it has no more questions to ask. It has questioned itself. You cannot call up any wilder vision than a city in which men ask themselves if they have any selves at all. You cannot fancy a more skeptical world than that in which men doubt if there is a world. And so he thinks like this is sort of the end of society and things just can't get any worse than they have. Um, we have found all the questions that can be found. It is time we give up looking for questions and begin looking for answers. So he's like, this is the call to the turn. Like, let's come back to reality and reason. And this was like late 19th century London. I just, I, that, that section I found was just super hilarious. Our world is so much worse than what he envisioned.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, he, he does talk about like the modern affinity for change, like we were saying. And it is interesting how these ideas began over a century ago. I mean, these aren't like new things. Mm. Um, he talks about Nietzsche a little bit.
1: Um, oh, yeah. He doesn't like Nietzsche. He is it Nietzsche? That,
0: is it Nietzsche? That's how you say it? Nietzsche? Uh,
1: if you're going to pronounce it in German, it's Nietzsche.
0: Nietzsche. Not <laughs> Nietzsche? That,
1: not that sounded almost Japanese. che <laughs> 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 That's racist. Nietzsche. Um,
0: if the, sta- <laughs> if the standard changes, how can there be improvement, which implies a standard? He talks about basically when people are trying to – like the idea of progressivism or progress implies a standard that, to which we are working. So you can't escape standards. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's that much to, to say about that.
1: Well, but, I mean on, on, the, on the Nietzsche thing real quick, he – so Nietzsche's big thing was the will to power. Like yeah, Nietzsche thought – Morality was sort of a shackle and it's a holdover from Christian times and the truly enlightened individual surpasses or evolves past morality and so it's all about the will. And then Chesterton uh, responds and says, the worship of will is the negation of will. To admire mere choice is to refuse to choose. So willing and like worshiping your will is itself a kind of like... um, Undermining of your own free will. Because you're not acting. You're just sitting there admiring your will. You're not doing anything. You're admiring your ability to choose. You're not actually choosing. Um, and so he thinks like he's affirming like just living life and doing the sort of like run-of-the-mill daily sort of stuff. But then he also critiques will as um as a limitation. He says, every act of will is an act of self-limitation. I think this is fascinating. To desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. That objection which men of this school used to make to the act of marriage is really an objection to every act. Every act is an, irrev- an irrevocable selection exclusion. Just as when you marry one woman, you give up all others, so when you take one course of action, you give up all the other courses. <laughs> if you give up King of England, if you become King of England, you give up the post of Beadle of Brompton. If you go to Rome, you sacrifice a rich, suggestive life in Wimbledon. So, this idea that there's like the human life comes necessarily with limitations. And we think that what it is to have unlimited choices is to have unlimited freedom and that may be true until you make a choice chesterton says the moment you make a choice you self-limit because you have closed yourself off from having done something else if i choose to eat one thing now i do that by excluding everything else if i choose to befriend someone now like choice has to exclude other things. And we see this most obviously in marriage, and he points this out. When you marry someone, there's a sense, a sense in which you're, you're settling, you're, you're excluding, right? You've decided to stop on this person. And that's a good thing, because it means that you to acquire a good thing, you close yourself off to other good things. And the human nature is itself self-limiting, he calls it sacrifice. He says you have to sacrifice to choose to make decisions. You can't have everything. And I just, it, it, it's existentially powerful. Like the act of willing, we think is a total act of freedom, but it actually, it's an act of limitation because every time you decide something, you close yourself off to other possibilities. That's you why your dating profile. Uh, your life.
0: That's why your dating profile says uh, looking to settle for someone or looking to, uh, lim- looking to self limit, self limit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking to self limit to one person.
1: I mean, we do. We say, like, I'm looking to settle down. There's a sense in which we see excluding possibilities as a good thing. Like, I have all these possibilities, but I don't want to have all the possibilities. How did, how did Nietzsche not see this?
0: Thing? How did he not
1: see it? That that's, I don't know, like, man. That there's,
0: You know? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I don't know that he was, like, a proponent of traditional marriage anyway. So, But, but I mean, no, even he, in general, I mean, it seems so clear that a choice
1: is an act of limitation. Yeah, um, I, but I I don't, I don't think people see it that way. It, it's kind of a counterintuitive way of thinking. You think that having lots of choices is the opposite of excluding, and that's true. Like, if you just sit there and never do anything, but the moment you decide to do something, you constrain. And then Lewis talks about this, too, with every time you make a decision, you funnel yourself, you're making yourself into a kind of person. So when I when I take the decision to go hiking. I make a decision that's helping me become a certain kind of person. Either I will love hiking and continue to do that, or the decision makes me dislike hiking or something like that, but it does constitute my character in in a certain way. It it changes my story and the narrative arc of my story. And so choice is self-limitation because to make a choice is to write down something in the book of your life that makes you into a certain kind of person and that closes off other possibilities for you how does this tie into Christianity though like what's the point he's like
0: what is the point he's trying to counter with nature here
1: that it's not that we God doesn't give us a will so that we can just admire it and it's like just do it sort of like Nike tagline do things don't just sit there sort of navel gazing and, and reflecting on the fact that you have this capacity for will Go and do things, do good things, but recognize that the things that you do uh, make you into a certain kind of person, and be okay with self-limiting, that certain good things are only possible by excluding other things. And then the paradigm example is marriage. You cannot have the good of marriage without closing yourself off to other good things. Like by having this one person, I can only have this one person by closing myself off to everyone else but that is worth it. Like the good of marriage exclusive relationships is only possible by closing yourself off from other people and other options in the sense of not like you can't have other friends, but like you've closed yourself off to only having this one spouse, but certain goods like intimacy with one person can only be achieved with one person. And so I think, I think that's sort of an abstract way of putting it, but certain good things can only be had by excluding other things. We talked can't about Nietzsche. Have
0: he says Nietzsche preached something that's called egoism. Um, I, I guess that's saying you should do, I don't know. I don't I, don't, I, don't, I haven't studied Nietzsche, but I assume ego
1: you're talking you, about. You are number one.
0: Yeah. So yeah. he says, first the egoist calls life a war without mercy. And then he takes the greatest possible trouble to drill his enemies in war preach egoism is to practice altruism so basically what he's saying is if you try if you think all of life is a war for your own will like your own will asserting itself then if you are teaching other people to do that you're working against you're, you're actually helping them yeah now i don't know because you could still gain something from them following you i suppose yeah but i think he's just trying to make the thing self-destruct from the inside um yeah, I mean, he, he, then he goes on to, to the idea of the act of will as, as an act of self-limitation. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. He also talks about art. He says how art is, shows the limits of our will, or rather how our will limits ourself. Because he says, it's impossible to be an artist and not care for laws and limits. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. (laughs) The moment you step into the world of facts, you step into a world of limits. Hmm. So he's saying, look, you're limited. Like, art art is seen as this great creative thing. But if you draw a giraffe without a long neck, you're not drawing a giraffe.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Right. And then every painting is contained within a frame. So limitation actually spurs that creativity. It's, limitation is good, and in the same sense, the limitation of choice is also good. Or the, or the, mm. the fact that when you make choice, you limit your options, that's, that's what a life is, yeah. making these decisions. And I mm. wonder if why we're so anxious and crazy is because we actually have so many choices.
1: Oh you know? yeah, absolutely. Psychologists talk about the, the paradox of choice. The more choices you have, not only is it less easy to make choices, but you don't enjoy the things that you choose as much because you constantly think about the other things that you could have picked.
0: Well, and it kind of, it might even go into the, like the idea of faith because it's a marketplace of ideas. There's all these different faiths you can check out. You can dabble Mm -hmm. in a few. It's a very consumeristic mindset, whereas before it was passed down through family. It was passed down through tradition. It was passed down through your society. And Mm -hmm. we've lost that mechanism. And so everybody has to, has the weight of kind of filling out their own model of meaning, you know, and it's just overwhelming. I mean, you can't really do that. And I think people are, look, there's this vacuum of meaning which people gravitate toward political causes or social causes or whatever, because there's a, there's a void. Nature abhors a vacuum kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if Chesterton is noting this, where the only reason we have this sense of, we can impose our will upon the world is because of technology. You know, it's because we've, we've, we have this sense of power and immediacy. And, um, but I, I th- maybe that's just, that there's something very unnatural about that. Maybe Why are you smiling yeah. like a? Cause
1: I, I never thought I'd, I'd see the day where you make like an anti-technology <laughs> criticism.
0: What? You sound, like,
1: you sound like Wendell Berry or something. <laughs> yeah. There you go.
0: There you go. I mean, there's gotta be a way to do this without homesteading. We're living on a farm. I mean, well, look, I mean, but you can't, you can't go back in time. We are where we are. And so I don't know how you take what Chesterton is saying in the, you know, what is it, the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and apply that today. I mean, I know how it applies, but like, I'm like, I don't know what the solution is, you know. He does bring up Christ at the end, you know, about how Christ is neither an egoist or an altruist, or rather how people who are super charitably driven might view Jesus as an egoist like everyone has to worship him it's all about him and then a a Nietzsche kind of guy who's saying oh he's an you know I don't like his altruism he cares about the sick and the poor and the whatever that's that's not egoism like both sides have have beef with Jesus but he sort of presents this (laughs) this third way you know of uh (laughs) of looking at things um but, yeah, I mean, I, I finished reading this and I'm like, it's so dense. I mean, basically, again, he's, what is he saying? The modern world, our virtues have gone crazy because mm-hmm. we're trying to do them apart from the framework of Christianity. And when we do that, we end up, uh, the virtues end up being a shadow, a, a, dep- a deprived version of what they ought to be. And that leads to charity running amok, meaning we're overly charitable to where we say there's no sin. We're so charitable that we have no justice. We have no sense of right or wrong. And that gets out of whack. The other thing is we end up taking virtues like humility and twisting them. We end up saying, oh, I'm being humble because I say I can't learn anything or I can't know anything. And we end up becoming radical skeptics or we end up sawing off the uh, branch that we're sitting on. And uh, we end up denying mathematics and all these types of things because who can know? And the only person we don't ever put under the microscope is our own self. We don't actually examine our microscope to see if it's dirty or if it's working properly. And he traces that and says, the whole world is kind of scrambling to fill the void. And he's like, look, I mean, I think Christianity, it's not, we're not trying to progress into something new. We're trying to retrieve what has been old. That is the foundation for why we're even here. You know, we can't even get to this point about talking about these things without this foundation.
1: we should have so, just had that as the whole podcast. <laughs> you summed up the whole chapter in like yeah, there you 90 go. seconds.
0: <laughs> that That's um, good. What did you think about his uh, diss of determinists?
1: Deter- determinist.
0: One, one of the things that I can't get behind. <laughs> the determinist who to do him justice does not pretend to be a human being. <laughs> He's like to be charitable <laughs> to determinists, which is what he would refer to as Calvinists. I mean, the Calvinists are determinists. Is that, is that a yeah. fair thing to say? Yeah, most most would be, yeah. Okay, so if you're a reformed Calvinist, uh, and he says those Calvinists, the determinists, <laughs> they don't pretend to be human beings, and they make nonsense of the human sense of actual choice.
1: <laughs> I think he's so, he's thinking in, like, overly rigid categories. If, if determinism is true, you can't make choices, but we've been over this territory before, and I just think he's he's not read, like... Edwards or other people who have thought about this stuff and, and he, might, he might be responding to like a very specific scientific reductionist I don't, he might not have yeah. in mind determinism the way that sophisticated theological determinists are thinking about it but just sort of like people who say you are just your neurons or something yeah I, I don't know I'm, I'm trying to be charitable to him even though he's not charitable to me as a determinist there you go
0: <laughs> You're, he's determined to be not charitable Wow. so he's a
1: determinist too
0: <laughs> but uh and well, you know, I think maybe a modern application of this is thinking about. I, I just did an interview with Ryan Hurd. You
1: don't even listen to the, my interview podcast. I know day. Ryan Hurd you, you,
0: you, you know him?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I know of him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you should listen to the podcast.
0: <laughs> but uh, he talks about the grandma reading of, of of scripture, where there's there's this sense in which the scriptures. Are understood, I mean, out of the mouth of babes, you know, like out of the mouth of children, like the scriptures are understood not by the high and the elite and the mighty, but by those who people consider the fools of the world, the weak. And there's something to that. I think the common sense of like, there's something that your grandma who's faithfully praying, reading the Bible. Maybe she has a more simple understanding of theology. There's something that she gets in her simple faith that she believes. Like, it's better to believe a few things with all your heart than to know a bunch of things and believe them superficially, right? And I think, who ends up understanding the doctrine of God better? A woman, You know, that old lady who faithfully prays, you know, and reads the scripture, serves people, shows the fruit of the Spirit. Or, you know, the ivory tower skeptic who... I mean, you see that all the time. You see these brilliant scholars of the Old Testament who don't believe in God, who are atheists Mm -hmm. or, you know, or scholars of of historical scholars of Jesus. They spend their whole life studying Jesus and they don't believe that he's God, you know. Um, So I think there's something to that, that that Chesterton is circling around. And I think he develops that more. But it's almost like if you're going to get Christianity, you've got to think differently. First, like you've got, to, well, you've got to humble yourself, right? You've got to place yourself under the microscope. Maybe that's the big thing. Christianity is about placing yourself under the microscope and having yourself exposed and humbled rather than trying to put God under the microscope, you know? What, what do you take away from this if you leave this? You're like, what, I mean, what does that mean for
1: today? You're, you're trying to get me to admit that my academics are in the way of my theology. I'm getting, trying to
0: get you to quit but, and resign your job. No, I, no, I, no. I, but, I, but, but, I so, but because you're in academia, what, like, how does that affect you?
1: I mean, it's always good to... I was just having a conversation with a colleague earlier, actually, about how <clears throat> reading testimonies of people converting or reading the work of pastors and missionaries on the ground can actually be hugely spiritually edifying and just like a welcome relief from reading academic works because it's just so in touch with reality. So reading about people who are pastoring local congregations or going into the unreached places of the world and seeing miracle accounts and people seeing visions of Jesus and just like, that's not the sort of stuff you get in academic circles, but arguably that is more in touch with the things that God is doing on the ground. And those are normal, ordinary people. And I think God often chooses as the ways that he confuses and confuddles the wise is through the normal, everyday, mundane stuff. And so it's always helpful to be reminded that God affirms the mundane and the ordinary and the common. And in our effort to go beyond that, sometimes we miss we miss the beauty of the painting. We miss the obviousness. We miss the first principles. And there's a kind of like calling back to our back to our senses back to our true love back to all the good things so I take it with a little bit of conviction and inspiration
0: I think it helps to think too that when you think about sharing the gospel with people it's not merely an intellectual exercise or if people are searching for God it's not even just read a bunch of books about God or answering skeptics but it's a sense of which you have to experience the hospitality of the church. You've got to sing. You've got to be around the music. You've got to see families. There's there's something more earthy about how we come to faith. And that the suicide of thought is all about if you make everything about this kind of skepticism. Or it, again, like you're saying, if, if you're overthinking all the time, you're actually not thinking well at all. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just need to take a step back and that belief and faith are things that aren't anti-intellectual, but they're not merely these intellectual things, you know. Great discussion. Thanks for listening. Uh, Make sure you guys pick up a copy of Orthodoxy yourself and read along with us. We're going to be coming back next week with chapter four. Should be a great discussion. Make sure you subscribe, share with a friend, follow us on Instagram. That'll preach podcast. And uh, leave us a message. Let us know if you have any questions or if you want us to cover any other topics on our show, maybe we'll get to them. So thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.